I'm very pleased to be joined by Vikram Patel, uh, one of the lead authors on the China-India Mental Health Alliance series. Hello, Vikram. Hi, Niall. So the first question I have is why this series and why now? Well, India and China together represent more than a third of the world's population, and I think both countries are at a remarkable stage of their epidemiological and demographic transition. Uh, they're also seeing a remarkable amount of social change. They're seeing a remarkable amount of new energy in investing in public health. And it just seemed to me for all these reasons that this was a great opportunity to see how these two giants, neighbors in Asia, were addressing the burden of mental health problems and what lessons could be learned, not only for these two countries, but indeed for other low and middle income countries as well. And also countries which are undergoing massive economic change. Absolutely. Indeed, most of the low and middle income world is seeing the sorts of social change. In some respects, India and China, being middle income countries, are uh, somewhat more advanced in the stage of social change. But certainly where these two countries are today is where many of the less, income, less resource countries will be in a few years from now. And that brings with it opportunities. It also brings with it challenges. So let, let's start off by talking about some of the challenges that, that these changes are bringing. Well, I think the social change is accompanied by um, obviously changes in the way families organize themselves. Uh, for example, because of urbanization, uh, there are a range of new social determinants or an increased prevalence of certain social determinants uh, that might affect a person's mental health. So these are some of the challenges that might explain, uh, for example, the increasing rates of suicides that we see in young people in India and that we did see in China. Uh, but as the series will show, um, there have been changes in China in terms of these uh, rates falling in recent years, whereas in India, of course, they've continued to rise. I mean, this um, business of suicide rates in India, I know that it is an area of, of concern, and yet the, the pattern, the demographics are very different to what, say, European or North American suicide researchers. That's correct. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the suicide paper will, will shed a lot more light on that. Um, you know, I, I personally think... Um, that the bigger area of difference between India and China um, is the investment that China has made in the last decade or, or a bit um, in its public health care system. In many ways, it has rolled out uh, what I consider the largest publicly financed mental health care program in the developing world and possibly the world with several million people uh, registered now in what's called the 686 program. By contrast, India has a fairly abysmal performance in terms of not just the public financing but more importantly the implementation uh, of the public mental health care system. So I think there's certainly a very significant difference between these two countries in the success they've had in achieving publicly funded coverage of mental health care and I think India could learn quite a lot from China in that regard. Could you give me any idea of the sort of scale of treatment gap that we're talking about in India? In the paper that I lead, uh, we've actually done a systematic review of the treatment gap, and I think the key pictures, uh, the key findings that emerge from that is that the treatment gaps are very large for the common mental disorders, such as depressive and anxiety disorders, and also for substance use disorders, such as alcohol use disorders. Um, they tend to be smaller, not surprising, for the serious mental disorders, because those are obviously more uh, frequently noticed. Um, the other important finding is very large inequities in uh, coverage um, comparing rural 
in urban areas again. It's not terribly surprising, but now we can show this uh, by the systematic review. Also, we can see very little evidence of the measurement of treatment gap for certain groups of people, for example, children, uh, in whom we have almost no literature, uh, no research evidence on the size of the treatment gap. My guess is it's pretty large. So what are the... Okay, number one priority is more money, clearly. But what would the other priorities be in enabling India to, to meet this challenge? I think we need very strong technical leadership. We need leadership by public mental health uh, professionals working within government. Um, these are the kinds of people who have the necessary skill set to design, uh, to organize, to build capacity, and to monitor public mental health programs. At the moment, um, the, the problem in India is that most public mental health care programs are being implemented through departments of psychiatry in medical schools. And whereas these are perfectly reasonable places for providing specialized care, these are not necessarily the right uh, platforms for organizing a public mental health care system. I know that in the UK and in the USA, uh, in, in other countries in recent years, mental health has become far more part of, of the public discourse with anti-stigma campaigns, with uh, films and dramas and documentaries coming out, it seems, every week uh, on the topic, which is, of course, welcome. Um, in India, is there a similar level of public discourse about mental health issues? Certainly. I, I actually, you know, in the last 20 years that I've been working in India, I've seen a dramatic shift in uh, the discourse on mental health. Um, just in terms of volume, it has increased dramatically. Um, almost every magazine or many television uh, programs will have themes related to mental health and mental illness. Um, and it has to be said, it's dealt with in a very compassionate, in a very sensitive, and in a very non-stigmatizing way. Uh, so I think this is all very positive. Uh, what has happened, therefore, is the much greater awareness about mental health problems, although that doesn't necessarily mean people use biomedical concepts, but they do recognize these as health issues. What's missing now is the actual supply of effective interventions in community-oriented platforms. And it sounds, though, as if we're getting some momentum building towards that. How can India and China help each other in, in harnessing this momentum and promoting change that, that sounds so badly needed? Well, I think both countries face very similar challenges in terms of the large populations and therefore the large numbers of people affected by mental health problems and need of care, the lack of uh, appropriate community care arrangements in both countries and the rapidly changing family systems that are used to traditionally care for people with particularly serious and enduring mental health problems. So I think uh, if academics, uh, public health academics, policymakers, uh, and relevant stakeholders of the community in both countries were able to come together, share experiences from various uh, demonstration projects or um, you know pilots uh, showing how these challenges could be addressed, I think there's a real prospect uh, for learning on an exponential scale. So let's hope that this series of papers marks uh, the start of a beautiful friendship. Well, you know what? I think this is one of the rare examples of academics on, uh, you know, in these two countries which share such a long land border but could easily be living in different continents. It's one of the rare examples I know of, of academics from these two countries collaborating in this way and leading to this series of papers in The Lancet and The Lancet Psychiatry. And we look forward to much more in future. Thank you very much, Nal. Vikram Patel, thank you very much. For the second half of this podcast, I'm going to hear from one of the other driving forces of the China-India Mental Health Alliance series, and that's Michael Phillips. Hello, Michael. Hello. So can you tell us, for a start, a bit about yourself? 
I'm currently the head of the Suicide Center at the Shanghai Mental Health Center, which is part of the Shanghai Jiao Tung University. I'm also a professor of uh, both psychiatry and the global health at Emory University. So why China-India and why now? Well, clearly China and India account for a huge part of the world population, and since we're increasingly interested in global mental health because of the sustainable goals, I think that uh, not thinking about China and India, you're missing a, a huge part of the world. Also, China and India are in some senses, very different countries in that India is the largest democracy, uh, China is the largest communist country, and yet they're both on a very rapid developmental uh, trajectory. And as they are, the health is improving, and so there's increasing concerns about uh, mental health and uh, mental well-being. So you picked up on something very interesting there, which is that these countries have you know, very, very different histories uh, and very different political mm -hmm. systems. But nevertheless, from what I've seen in the series and from talking to you previously and talking to Vikram, uh, they seem to also have some challenges in common and possibly some solutions in common. Challenges, yes. Uh, solutions, we're still working on them. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think one of the challenges is that they're such large countries, there's huge diversity around the country. Uh, now, China has 33 provinces, you include Hong Kong and Macau. And uh, a recent publication in The Lancet showed that, for example, suicide rates around these 33 provinces varied by tenfold. Previous work in, uh, in India has shown that suicide rates around the 26 states in India vary by 10 to 20-fold. And so, yes, they're huge and they're developing and they're urbanizing very rapidly, but there's still a huge range of diversity within the countries. And that's true for both of the countries. And how do you get a national plan and how do you implement it at local levels where things are so different at local levels is a common problem that they face. I'd like to talk a little bit more about this issue of suicide rates, which, which you mentioned. Now, mm -hmm. clearly, of course, within the countries, there's huge amounts of diversity. But I think the other thing for maybe readers in uh, Britain, other European countries in the U.S. to get their heads around is that the, the sort of pattern of suicide, the, the demographics, they seem to be very different in China and in India. Yeah, well, if you look over the last 20 years, the Chinese rates, and this is from the World uh, Suicide Report that came out a year and a half ago, have dropped by 50 to 60 percent, an amazing number, whereas the rates in India have gone up maybe 20 to 30 percent. So even though they're both developing, both urbanizing, the rates are going in the opposite direction. And that's um, the question is why, and the simple answer is we don't know, and we're certainly trying to figure it out. And the pattern as well? I mean, that must be related to the shift from rural to urban life? Yeah, the, the for example, China has gone from over the last 20 years from 20% uh, uh, urban to 50% urban. That means there's 300 million people less who have daily access to pesticide, which is the most common method of suicide in China and probably in India, though we're not entirely sure. We expect it's also true in India. And so 300 million people less have daily access to the most lethal means of suicide. That clearly is going to change the whole pattern of suicides. It, it was interesting that, that you mentioned that. It, it's almost a, a sort of a benefit in that you move away from risk factors. But uh, I guess this fits into the overall pattern that urbanization brings benefits, but it also brings maybe disruptions. Yeah, well, the, you know, there's uh, obviously different views on this. One sense is that, you know, with the uh, breakdown of the strong family bounds, family connections that occur in rural areas where people live together and, fa and families, often extended families, as the young people especially go to the city, that 
leaves the elderly and sometimes the, the children or the grandchildren in the rural areas uh, who don't have the kind of support they have. But on the other hand, these people, uh, you know, it also is related to hope and the sense of a future. And so it, it really is a, a mix. And uh, there's benefits, as you say, some downsides as well. And certainly in some areas, Urban, rural residents who move to cities live in kind of ghettos, and and so their living conditions and the conditions, education for the kids is problematic. But uh, it's very much mixed. Um, I think in China, at least, I can speak about China a little better, there's a continuing sense of hope. People still think, despite the increased gap between the rich and the poor, there's still their kids have a better chance at life and getting ahead than they do. And uh, then, and so there's a sense of, of um, that things are progressing in the community at large. And that sense of hope, I think, is what is the positive sense that not only for suicide reduction, but also mental health reduction. The one side that is clearly negative, that the rates, I think, really are going up, is in substance abuse. As people have more money, they're more likely to drink. Uh, and uh, some t- in some young groups in some parts of the country, in Ch- at least in China, there's also increased rates of drug abuse. And even if any society improves economically and, and socially for the individuals within it, there will, uh, in my view, still be some people who have often very severe mental illnesses. And then the question arises of treatment provision. I'm particularly interested in the long history, really, of mental health law in China. It's taken us a very, very long time, 27 years of kind of draft after draft after draft before it finally got improved. And it just, I think it's part of the international movement. You know, the uh, WHO and the United Nations have now put a lot of emphasis on mental health. The WHO had its first global mental health plan two years ago, and China kind of is on board with that. And so that's finally moved us ahead in the law. Like uh, everywhere, mental health laws are pieces of paper until people actually enact them. And uh, there's, it's very, you know, the law is uh, idealistic in many ways. It talks about reducing stigma, which, of course, we've been trying to do for many, many decades. Probably the most controversial or difficult to implement element is uh, moving from an involuntary hospitalization program to a voluntary hospitalization program. Uh, because typically in China, the family makes all the decision, and that's that's part of the family culture and the uh, communal versus individualistic approach of culture. And so moving from that to have individuals make the decision about when they go in and when they come out of hospital is a major step that's in the law, though I think it's going to be a while before it's actually implemented. And let's talk about that issue of stigma. When I spoke to Vikram, he felt that uh, in India there have been really great strides against that. Uh, Is there a similar situation in China? It varies. Um, Urban and rural differences. The urban areas have more contact with the West and sort of, you know, Western movies and things that sort of normalize some of the behaviors we think of mental illness. In the rural areas, people think of mental illness as psychosis, depression, alcohol abuse, dementia. Those just aren't on, on the they're not considered mental illness. They're considered social problems. And so they say it's stigmatized, yes. Suicide uh, and other things, serious mental illness is heavily stigmatized still. There's some attempt to decrease it, and I think we've had some success. But one of the issues is that a lot of the things that we as professionals identify as mental illness aren't considered mental illness by many people, at least in rural communities. And one of the the issues which Lancet Psychiatry has covered in the past and is indeed covered in in this set of papers is the idea of using uh, complementary medicine, what we call alternative forms of care, to really help to scale up mental health services. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in China, we have traditional Chinese medicine, which is about a third of the entire medical system is traditional Chinese medicine. And, of course, in India, you have Ayurvedic medicine, you have yogis, you have others. For China and India, one of the big change differences that Vikram and I have talked about a couple of times is in, in India, there's other people. I mean, we're worried mostly about the rural areas now. Um, there's other people who can be kind of health aides and fill out some of the other roles where you don't really need psychiatrists, but you need social support for people of mental illnesses. In China, you have your village doctor, but he or she, usually he, he or she has a huge range of other responsibilities. So they have very limited energy to place on mental illness because they have to do diabetes, have to do hypertension, have to do everything else. And we don't have the kind of health aid sort of people in the rural areas. And bringing the TC, the tri, uh, traditional Chinese medicine people into providing more mental health services, I think is a fine idea, but it's not going to, it's really not, at least in the real rural areas, it's not going to, uh, we don't have enough of those personnel anyway. We got to, and the idea is how can we mobilize other types of personnel, because you don't really have in rural areas social workers and things like this, that in India, they have a little better coverage. They have NGOs in rural areas in China, have very few NGOs. And so mobilizing additional manpower in rural China is, uh, I think, uh, our major challenge to upgrade uh, overall mental health services. Any possibility that technology would help with this process? Well, we've looked at, you know, M-medicine and, you know, cell phones, because cell phone penetration is reasonably good. Of course, in the real poor areas, people don't have cell phones or certainly don't have apps on phones and things, but uh, it's a possibility. I um, I want to see it before I can believe it, frankly, because we've done stuff with schizophrenics, try and get them to take their medication and things, and it hasn't been that successful. So it sounds nice, but can it really work? Um, I think we need uh, a lot more work to demonstrate that it, whether or not it can be an effective alternative having people on the ground. And like One of the main problems in China is that with the great improvement in health, people are living a lot longer. And with the one-child-per-family policy, they have fewer kids to support them. And so we're having a very rapid increase in the rates of dementia. And, you know, technology, you know, cell phones and things like that aren't going to help for the large increasing numbers of people with dementia. You need carers on the ground, especially as people get at the terminal end of, of dementia when they really need high-quality nursing care. And where are we going to get the manpower to provide that? That's a question that um, I lose sleep over because I, I can't see a trajectory that's actually going to get us that kind of manpower because the rate you look at the numbers and the, the uh, old age dependency ratio, both in India and China, more rapidly in China because of the one-child family policy. But uh, um, it's scary thinking of how much social resources are going to have to be committed to deal with this um, tidal wave of dementia that's sort of hitting us already. So without wanting to, to make you lose any more sleep. I wonder if we could conclude by um, talking about where you'd like to see mental health care in China in 10 years' time. What would be your, your wish list? Well, I'd like to see every count, because this is not so new, there's a new mental health plan that just came out. I, I would like to see at least part-time, if not full-time, uh, psychiatrists in county-level hospitals who could actually monitor uh, care provision and rehabilitation services in the more rural areas. We just don't have enough coverage at the county level. You got the big city hospitals, some areas in the richer rural areas you might have a hospital, but there's just the idea of having a three-tier system where you have the county, you have the, t the village, the county, and the, uh, the township and the county, and maybe the urban area just isn't there yet. And getting um, 
uh, manpower in the county-level general hospitals to uh, at least provide outpatient services and monitor and diagnose people and sort of follow up on services is very essential. That's one area. The other areas that are underserved now, I think, that really need resources, as I'm very concerned about dementia. I'm very concerned about the lack of extensive services for children and substance abuse, particularly alcohol, is a problem that nobody sees as a problem. And uh, it looks to me like it's a big problem that's getting bigger. And it's not seen as a mental health problem by, uh, you know, hardly anybody. And uh, I think that's uh, um, something that needs to change. So some hard work ahead, but, but also a bit of hope there. Certainly. There's a lot, you know, things are, you know, compare, I've been here 30 years and things are much, much better. I mean, it's, uh, it's exciting to do the work now because, you, you know, the law has happened and there's re- the government's putting resources into it. So there's definitely a lot of hope in terms of uh, our opportunity to improve services for people who need them. Michael Phillips, thank you very much. Thank you. And you can access the China-India Mental Health Alliance papers on thelancet.com. Uh, meanwhile, Thank you very much for downloading and listening to this podcast, and I hope that you'll join us again next time. Goodbye.